Well, thank you, ladies. I know that the retreat was such a blessing to all of the ladies of our church, and I'm just thankful for uh, you all leading us this morning. And if you see all the red shirts around this morning, these are our ladies who were at the retreat this weekend, and we pray that God would continue to work through um, all that they experienced um, over the past few days. Church, this morning we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 10. And as I've said before, if you're seeing me, that's a reminder to you that you need to pray for uh, our pastor, and we're going to do that at the end of our service, if if that would be okay. Um, So just be ready for that. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 10 this morning. A couple of weeks ago, you might remember when we were in chapter 7, uh, Pastor Nate said something to the effect of how, you know, there are certain passages in Scripture that, that really stick out above the rest. I mean, when you think of 2 Samuel 7 and the promise of the Davidic covenant and just glorious, glorious passages that ultimately get fulfilled in Christ and, and show us, you know, uh, that God was at work centuries before Christ even came. So just passages that really stick out to us. Well, When we come to 2 Samuel chapter 10 this morning, this is not one of those passages. This is not one of those chapters. Uh, Somebody said to me this morning, I'm curious to see what you're going to do with with this chapter. Well, as I was uh, reading and kind of preparing and reading some commentators, uh, one commentator made this note. It really encouraged me in the prep. He said, chapter 10 by itself has no great theological significance for us. That'll really motivate you to prepare. Uh, Well, church, I see things maybe a little bit differently. It's not chapter seven, of course, but this is God's word. And it always has significance for us. I was reminded of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it says, it is profitable. It is profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Even the... 2 Samuel 10s of our lives. So I think there's plenty to see here and apply from David's encounter with the Ammonites and the Syrians here in our passage. And maybe the reason that this will hit home more than that particular commentator thinks is because our world really doesn't look that different than King David's world. I mean, the people look different and the customs are a little bit different, but sin is the same and sinful responses are, well, they're, they're the same too. Our world isn't so different than King David's. You know, nations always seem to be raging all around us, don't they? One nation at another nation, people against people who just don't like each other. I mean, we just have to turn on the news every once in a while and we see, yep, Russia continues to war against Ukraine, going on two years now. Uh, There are at least five African countries that are today in the middle of a civil war. There are, we can add to that, the internal conflicts going on in Syria and Myanmar and Afghanistan. And maybe there's somewhere park of 25 countries that are engaged in in some sort of war or uh, or some kind of insurgency at the moment maybe more than that but friends it just goes to show us our world is raging the nations are raging all around us now the thing is we don't necessarily see all of that 
We don't necessarily experience all of that in our personal lives. It, it doesn't affect us. It doesn't affect our day-to-day. It probably, we don't feel the, the pain and the, and the economic effects of all the raging of nations on the other side of the world. Not always. But church, we do often feel the anxiety, the pains of political or social raging that goes on in our own country, the kind of raging that goes on in our own communities and and maybe even the difficulties and the trials and the struggles that go on in our own families. We feel that personally. We, We feel the anxiety of that. The church as always, I think scripture gives us hope for times just like this. I wanna read 2 Samuel chapter 10 for us before we get into it any further. So would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Second Samuel 10, beginning in verse one. After this, the king of the Ammonites died and Hannah and his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hannah, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Now when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. And when Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad-Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam and Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadad-Ezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with them. 
and the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging that we need you. We are desperate for you. And Father, we thank you that you are so good to us. God, you have spoken to us through your word, and we ask this morning that by your Holy Spirit that you would encourage us, challenge us. Lord, help us to rightly understand and rightly apply your word. And we commit this time to you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, you can be seated. Well, so how do we navigate a world in chaos? How do we navigate a a world where crises seem to come at us unexpectedly and where, where anxiety is like the new baseline for society as a whole? And anxiety seems to be, in many cases, the new baseline, even in the church. How do we navigate a world like this? Well, let's consider how our text gives us help. Firstly, don't be shocked by worldly actions. Don't don't be shocked by worldly actions. Chapter 10 begins by telling us that the the Ammonite king Nahash has died. Now, we've seen him before. We know a little bit about him, but really, we're probably thinking, that's no big deal. I mean, it's not like this was a great guy. He was no friend of Israel, was he? You might remember back earlier in the year when we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 11, that he threatened to gouge out the right eyes of the men of Jabesh Gilead. Saul happened to come along and and save them at that particular time, but apparently though, somewhere along the way, Nahash was kind to King David. Maybe it was during the time when he was fleeing King Saul and Nahash showed some kind of kindness to him. So when Nahash dies, King David sends a a delegation to his son, Hanan. He sends this delegation to him because the text says he wants to deal loyally with him. Now that's that word we we looked at last week. This is that word hesed in the Hebrew, right? And I say that only because we're gonna see a a distinction between chapter nine and chapter 10. David wants to deal loyally with Hanan. He wants to show him some loving kindness. And I think we're set up at this point to expect a a similar response to the one we saw last week when when David wanted to show loving kindness to Mephibosheth. Remember that Mephibosheth comes in humbly and, and the king responds kindly to him and he welcomes him to his table and everything seems to go really, really well. That would be normal, wouldn't it? That would be a normal response. And maybe a a normal response to somebody who wants to show kindness to you in the midst of the death of a loved one. I mean, that's that's always been the the normal response in my experience. You know, I've been in ministry for somewhere around 20 years now. And, and, you know, we've, we've had lots of funerals in our church and people have sent flowers, you know, all the time. And and I gotta tell you, 
I never once have seen the flowers refused. Never once have, has the, the delivery person been treated with disrespect when they del were delivering those flowers. Never once did the family take it the wrong way and respond in a completely inappropriate manner or get angry with the people who were trying to show kindness to them. That's not normal. That, that's not a normal response, but yet that's exactly what happens with Hanan. He has the delegation's beards half shaved, which was a disgrace to them. And of course, there's the uh, inappropriate way that he, he cuts their, their garments as well in order to just shame them. The bottom line is what's happening here is Hanan is making a declaration of war. It wasn't necessary, it wasn't needed, but he makes a declaration of war and he knows it because he realizes right away that he's become a stench to King David. He's become a stench to the people of Israel. And that's why he hires the Syrian mercenaries to go to war with him against Israel. So what do we, what do we make of all of this? It's sort of confusing to us when we think about it. I mean, talk about an overreaction. Can't we all just get along? Isn't it nice enough that he sent this delegation to say some kind words on behalf of the king? What do we make of this? Well, things like this, I think, confuse the author of Psalm 2 as well. And he asks a really important question. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Church, in a, in a broken and rebellious world, people are going to rage and people are going to plot against the Lord and they're gonna plot against us. And we have to expect the unexpected. We should expect a lost world to more times than not act lost. You see, the reality is evil will sometimes come our way even when we're seeking to do good. We wanna treat people rightly we want to be kind to people. We want to be good citizens in society and out of nowhere, evil and wickedness come our way. People reject our displays of kindness. Maybe they misunderstand the motives of our words or our actions. You may find yourself at some point the object of humiliation in a way that was completely undeserved. And people may even plot against you in some wicked way. It happened to David. It happened to David and Israel here in this passage. But more importantly, it happened to our Savior, Jesus. What amazes me, though, when we think about Jesus and the way that he responded to such things is, is not that people raged against him and not necessarily that people plotted against him. I think we, we understand why they did that. They were wrong. They were sinful. But maybe we get that. What amazes me, though, is how Jesus responded in those moments. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Peter tells us, speaking of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's powerful. It's powerful to be able to respond in that way, but I, this is where it, where it really hits home. The very next verse there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it adds this. He himself 
bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words, church, what Peter is saying here, what scripture is saying is that Jesus died in our place and he died for our sin that we might live for righteousness, that we might live to righteousness so that we wouldn't be shocked all the time when people act worldly against us and somehow feel the need to retaliate that, that, that we would feel the need to become bitter and we would have this, this anger, or this maybe we would say righteous anger within us. No, it's so that we would live to righteousness so that we might ready our hearts for the reality of living as Christians in a broken world, continuing to show loving kindness even when it's sometimes rejected, continuing to invest in people when people can sometimes be difficult this was the way of our savior this is the way jesus responded we need only remember that this was the heart posture of jesus in every moment in every experience that he had good and wicked so let's follow his example and ask the spirit of christ to help us do just that now when we talk about not responding with retaliation not responding with bitterness That doesn't mean, though, that we become a doormat for people to walk all over. Jesus didn't do that, and he doesn't necessarily call us to do that either. We see, secondly, we need to apply wisdom when crises come. We need to apply wisdom when crises come. Good strategy and and godly wisdom aren't necessarily the same thing, but I think we can say that good strategy requires godly wisdom, doesn't it? In verses 8 through 11, we see this on display through David's military chief, Joab. When King David hears that, that the, the Ammonites have, have amassed this, this great army and that they've, they've hired the Syrians, he, he sends Joab out and he sends the, the army out against them. Now, the Ammonite king seems to be desperate here. He, we know from Chronicles that he pays 1,000 talents of silver to hire, to hire this, this Syrian mercenary army. And uh, he's desperate to get people to come along and to help him. But we notice here that uh, verse eight says, the Ammonites are ready for battle and they're at the gate of the city. But then the Syrian army, they're not gathered at the city, they're gathered behind the, the, uh, the Israelite army out in the open country. And so there are two fronts to the battle here. And it's going to require some wisdom and some strategic thinking. Now, the strategy here in the text is to divide the army with a particular focus on the Syrians because these guys are hired mercenaries. And maybe the the thinking is that mercenaries are more skilled than the regular army. Maybe that's the case. I mean, we see, we see things like this even today, don't we? The hiring of skilled mercenaries come and, and, and help fight a battle. I mean, we think about the, the Wagner Group mercenaries who have been helping, uh, well, I guess until recently, Vladimir Putin in his, in his uh, war against Ukraine. You see that uh, they, they come alongside and these guys aren't just regular old army guys. They're ruthless and they're effective in what they do because that's all they do. So we see here in the text with some out of character wisdom because Joab doesn't always act wisely, but in this case he does and he gives Abishai his brother the plan. Joab says he'll take the Syrian, take on the Syrian mercenaries with the best men of Israel. 
right? He's going to get the best guys and go battle them. And his brother Abishai will keep the rest of the army to battle the Ammonites. And then he says, if I need help with the Syrians, you come and help me. And if you need help with the Ammonites, then, then I'll come help you. In other words, we're both in this battle together and we're, we're probably going to need each other. We're going to need each other in this battle. There's great wisdom in the way that they've developed this plan. Now, the thing is, it was wise in this preparing for battle for the Israelite army, but that also couldn't be more true in the battles of the Christian life because our personal conflicts in our battles, while they're not gonna probably need a sword very often, they're still gonna need godly wisdom. You see, wise Christians acknowledge that they need each other. I appreciate the way that Joab speaks to Abishai in verse 11. That if you need me, uh, if you need me, I'll help you. If I need you, you'll help me. Hey, Christian, the reality of, of life is you're gonna face battles and trials and struggles. At least if you intend to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus. Those things are inevitably gonna come our way. But the wise Christian won't be a lone ranger Christian. Wise Christians understand that, that they, they don't navigate the Christian life on their own. And if they do, if we try to be Lone Ranger Christians, we usually end up discouraged, lonely, and spiritually weak. No, wise Christians acknowledge that they need one another, that they need the church, that we need to come together and we need to build each other up because the days aren't getting better, they're getting more wicked. Wicked Wise Christians know that they need to be in community with one another. I have never seen someone struggling in their faith who has been fully invested in community with brothers and sisters in, the Christ, in Christ, at least not long-term because they encourage, build one another, build one another up and point them to Christ. But we also see that wise Christians will remember their battles aren't just about them. Their battles aren't just about them. In verse 12, Joab tells Abishai, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. A lot of times we start to think that the battles that we're facing in life are personal. They're, they're private matters. These are just personal matters. But listen, uh, other, uh, other, other Christians watch how we battle. Other Christians, lost people around us, they're watching to see how we respond to the trials, to the difficult seasons of our life. And one way or another, we'll either make much of Christ in those moments or we'll give the impression that the spirit of Christ isn't actually indwelling us. One, one of the two, we'll either make much of Christ or we'll give the impression that he's not really there. Wise Christians remember, battles aren't just about them, but also wise Christians will remember what's at stake in life's battles. Joab tells his brother, we're fighting for the cities of our God. In other words, it's not just about us, it's not just about our victory, but this is about the glory of God. The way we fight, the way we battle, the way we take on the struggles that come at us aren't just about us, although they feel very personal and, and very much about us, because they are, they're also about the glory of God. Now, don't misunderstand here. 
I don't want us to think that the outcome of every battle you're gonna face in, in life is, is somehow known because we don't know. We don't know how they end up. Sometimes bad things do happen, don't they? We don't know the outcome of every battle that we face in life. But one thing I do know is that the battle must be fought to the glory of God. It must be fought to make much of Jesus. And that's what determines whether we're victorious in the battle or not. It's not ultimately about whether we live or whether we die. It's not ultimately about whether we have much or we have little. It's not ultimately about if, whether we have a lot of friends or a few friends who just don't get us. The difference is, or, or really what it boils down to is, are we making much of Jesus? Are we seeking to glorify God in the way that we battle? Now, friends, stemming from this application of wisdom, I think this is godly wisdom, we see thirdly here in the text the need to trust God's goodness to always prevail. You can trust God's goodness to always prevail. We know that nobody escapes this life without trials and battles. We live in a world that is under the curse, that is still broken and groaning for and waiting for the return of Christ, but hopefully... We understand that we're going to need courage and we're going to need wisdom in those times. And we've seen some of that on display by Joab here in the text. But the wisest thing that Joab says is at the end of verse 12. He says, may the Lord do what seems good to him. May the Lord do what seems good to him. Now keep in mind, as far as we know, and every indication in the text is that Joab has no word from the Lord about the outcome of this battle. He doesn't know how it's going to go. He doesn't know how it's going to end as he goes to battle against the Syrians and the Ammonites. He just, in this moment though, he leans on good theology. In this moment, he leans on good theology. Again, may the Lord do what seems good to him. Uh, church, I'm, I'm reminded once again of Psalm 2. After the psalmist speaks about the raging and plotting of those who, who have made themselves enemies of God, we get down to verse 4. Now in Psalm 2, verse 4, the psalmist responds this way. He says, he who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Now church, your enemies and, and your battles may look big today. And they may be. The, the, the challenges that we face in life may be overwhelming for us. And that could very well be true for us alone. But the Lord, he just laughs. The Lord, he, he just, he laughs. These, these aren't too big for him. These aren't too much for him to handle. Now again, let's be real as we think about this, God is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, and he is all-good, amen? We believe these things to be true, but that doesn't mean that no bad thing will ever happen to us in life if we just trust that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. Doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that he only does what is ultimately for our good and for his glory. Now, I don't want to make that sound too simplistic. It's not simple. 
It's not easy to understand and believe in the hard moments of life. But if we believe scripture, we know that God only does what is ultimately for our good and for his glory. You see, we don't know what all of that good is necessarily. We don't know all that God is doing. We don't know all the ways that his spirit is at work. But at the very least, we can say that the hard things in our lives are character building and faith building. And if that's true, is that enough? Is that enough for us? That God would put us through the fires of life in order to build our character, in order to strengthen our faith. You know, I hope we never become callous to truths like Romans 8, 28. We've heard it so many times. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Oh, I hope we never become callous to that. But I also hope that we never forget the two verses that follow, verse 28, that help us better understand the good that God is always doing in the life of a Christian. You see, Christian, in in verses 29 and 30, he goes on to tell us that God chose to foreknow us It says, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. And friends, this is good, no matter how he chooses to do it. He he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. It goes on to say, he called you to himself and he justified you. He justified me, though we did not deserve it. But based on what Christ has done for us, he justified us. And then it says, finally, he promises to finally glorify you in eternity. What good is God doing in the pains and the sufferings of our lives? I don't know. I don't know all of the details. But what I do know is he's working it for our good because he wants to conform us to the image of Christ. What I do know is that whatever he's doing, it is preparation for glory. It is preparation for for all that God has in store for us in eternity. Church, God's goodness will always prevail, even in the chaotic world that we live in, and his goodness will always prevail in our lives as we follow faithfully after Christ. Now, in the now, it doesn't always look like good, does it? It doesn't always feel good from our perspective, but I wanna put before us a a challenge this morning, especially in light of, you know, what we saw there in Romans 8, 28, I want to put before us the challenge of Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't trust your feelings. Don't trust how you interpret the moment, but, but taste and see that the Lord is good. Cast your cares upon him. Cast those anxieties upon him. Find your rest in him. I can only tell you my own personal experiences. And if you've done that in your life, you have your own personal experiences. But for the rest, taste and see for yourself. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good in every way at all times. You can trust the goodness, God's goodness to always prevail. Now, you know, trusting God doesn't make, as we said, every bad thing instantly go away. Nations are still gonna rage all around us because they're filled with sinful people. 
Our lives are still gonna experience conflict. They're still gonna experience battles because, well, we live among people who, in the words of Romans 1.22, claim to be wise, but have become fools. And at times, we feel that in our own lives, don't we? But I wanna ask us to commit to something this morning, to commit to standing firm on the hope of Christ, that he is, he will be for all of eternity victorious. He will bring us to glory. So let's live as faithful sojourners in this land that we know is not our ultimate home. Let's live wisely according to the wise counsel of scripture that is there for our good to help us draw near to Christ so that ultimately we can rest in the good and perfect plans of our Father who is in heaven, amen? amen. Friends, I hope, I hope these are realities that, that you understand and that you apply in your own life today. But I also understand that anytime we gather together, there's the potential that someone has, has not yet placed their faith and trust in Jesus. They don't yet have the hope of Christ in the hardest of times. They don't, they don't get the bigger picture when all they see is raging and plotting all around them. I understand. That makes sense without the hope of Christ. But my prayer this morning, as we sing here in just a moment, and we have a time of response, my prayer is that you would just let that go. Surrender to Christ. Find your rest in him. Find your hope in him. He wants to free us from the anxieties and the worries of this world so that we can rest in Christ and so that we can find our hope in him. Will you trust him today? Let's pray. Father, our hope is in Christ alone this morning. Father, our hope for today in the battles and struggles that we face are in Christ alone who went before us and who has declared every victory Father, our hope is in Christ this morning for whatever happens in the future because we know that whatever you do, however you act, whatever you allow in our lives, while we may not know all the details, oh, we know that you're gonna use it to conform us to the image of Christ. Help us to remember this truth. Father, for those who do not yet have the hope of Christ this morning, may this be the day when they turn away from sin and place their faith in Jesus alone and what he accomplished on the cross. Father, we love you. We pray that you would have your way in our hearts. Help us to respond according to the movement of your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Church, would you stand?